This is KSQD Santa Cruz. From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Charles Elton is my guest. He's written a couple of novels, produced TV shows in England, and has just published Chimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and The Price of Vision. Charles Elton, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you. Uh, if, if you were writing a novel, uh, you probably would have answered you know, several uh, central questions about your main character that you're basically unable to answer about the filmmaker Michael Cimino in your extraordinary new book, The Cimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and The Price of Vision. Well, was it frustrating to not be able to answer all the questions? Actually, I think in a funny kind of way, that was part of, part of, I didn't mean the fun exactly, but it was part of the interest in that it's a book about, and there are novels like it too, it's a book about trying to get to know somebody who is unknowable, and the unknowableness is in a way the pleasure, and if everything is neat, and at the end it's revealed that I can't quite think what that, whatever. Yeah. It's somehow curiously kind of pat and obvious. And that may be an excuse for me um, for the fact that I didn't finally reveal who he was because I say it's impossible to do. But the fun was in the journey and the contradictions and the rashomon-ness of the people around him. That was the interest. Well, I loved the book. Thank you for writing it. It needed to be written. And uh, and I think you bring a novelist touch to it, for sure. Uh, why do you think Chimino himself was such an evasive guy? Well, he had a lot of secrets, I suppose. He had a lot of different aspects to his personality that he didn't want to reveal to people. And he put up kind of smoke and mirrors, if that's what I mean. He he obfuscated everything um, and it made him hard to pin down. And he's certainly not the only one in, in a way most people don't really want to be pinned down in that way. They want to have wiggle room. And he certainly had a lot of that. Well, um, did he think it made him, uh, that his mystery made him more interesting or more mysterious? I think to some extent, yes. And I say in in the book, the, the, the stuff about his background, which he presented a completely different picture of his background than what I could find out was the reality of his background, because I talked to his brother and his nephew, who he hadn't, he'd never met the nephew, hadn't spoken to his brother for 30 years. Um, And in fact, his brother said to me when I first met him, I hope you could tell me something about Michael. I haven't seen him for 30 years. (laughs) Uh, So it was an odd position to somehow know more about his brother than he did. Um, but I think, I mean, in some ways, and, and I try in the book not to endlessly give my opinion about things. I just try to put the story out there, put various different 
versions of a story out there. And I don't really say which one is right or which one is wrong. I mean, what do I know? Um, <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, it, 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 that, and that's the fun of the book. It just puts it out there. And very rarely do, do I want to editorialize and give opinions. Well, um, did you want to or you just held back from doing so? No, I actively didn't want to. But but the one of the few I do do about his background is to say that his rather conventional middle class Italian immigrant background in a small town on Long Island wasn't wasn't an interesting enough backstory for him. You know, people want to be interesting, and 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 God knows he's not the only person who has done it. As I say in the book, Bob Dylan used to tell everybody, you know, he was an orphan who'd run away from a circus, to a, because he had a, he had a sort of middle class Jewish Minnesota dull upbringing, and what and I it, it, I understand it. We'd all like to come from somewhere exciting. Yes, uh, with, with Chimino was more than that, but that was an element of it. Bob Dylan's girlfriend at the time, Susie Rotolo, wrote a book about it. No, I've read that; it's great. Yeah, in which she was like pretty upset when she found out that he wasn't really Bob Dylan. You didn't even tell me. <laughs> um, what uh, what was it that drew you, uh, Charles Elton, to write uh, about Chimino? Well, it was really because I, I'd done a couple of novels. You know, I've written three books in like kind of 20 years. I'm not like Joyce Carol Oates. Um <laughs> And I could, and of course, I, partly I had a job and I was in television, I had young kids, so I was sort of busy. Um, I couldn't think of a novel and a friend suggested it because I'm a, I, I'm a, you might be able to tell from the book, I'm a complete showbiz junkie. It's the only thing I know anything about. And I, I mean, I can hardly even name the president of America, let alone the prime minister of England, but I can tell you, you know, who was the cameraman on the last 15 Clint Eastwood movies. It's never done me any good, but... We um, have had a couple of presidents who were in show business. But... <laughs> um, so I thought about it. For I mean, I knew I knew the Chimino story. I knew a lot about him. I knew about Joanne Corelli. I knew about the mysteries. I knew about, uh, you know, all, all the weirdness of his later years. So I did know quite a lot about it. And I sort of thought about it and I thought, well, what do I know about writing a biography? I don't even know how you would write a biography. And then I went out to LA where I've worked. So I know LA pretty well. I went out to LA for a bit and I just sort of contacted some people in the kind of Chimino diaspora. Um, And I began talking to some people and I guess I suddenly realized, well, I was writing the book. And I had said to myself that if I couldn't get to Joanne Corelli, who was the sort of main person in Chimino's life and was with him in, in some form or other for 50 years, who has never, ever talked, um, I thought if I couldn't get to her, I wouldn't do it. And then to my amazement, I did get to her and I did talk to her, not as I make very clear in the book, not that she revealed very much to me, 
but I did see her six or seven times for hours. And, you know, so inevitably, even though she kept saying she wasn't going to tell me anything, she did in a way, but she certainly never told me any secrets. But just by spending time with the woman, the person who knew Chimino best over 50 years, I don't know, it just, I just felt much closer to the subject. Do you, were they, uh, the Wikipedia page lists her as his wife. You're, um, you're unclear, I think, about whether or not they were actually married or when they were married. Or... Well, she too has put out a number of different stories. I, to be honest, I don't really know. And it wasn't something I asked her because I knew if I pushed things too far, she might not see me again. So I was quite cautious and and I knew also she wouldn't tell me anything. <laughs> I think, I don't know, they were, they had one of those strange symbiotic relationships, like kind of identical twins who speak a secret language. It was sort of like that. And I presume, but I don't know, that there was some romantic relationship at some point. They met in about 67, and he died in 2016. Um, I, I, I presume everybody thought that they were had a romantic relationship. Um, but that's if you see two people who have adjoining flats. They had adjoining flats in New York and adjoining houses on the beach at the Hamptons. So, you, of course, you could argue that if they had a romantic relationship, they'd have the same house on the beach at the Hamptons or the same apartment, but whatever. I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't really know because so few people know her and so few people knew the real Chimino. But whatever it was, she was the most important person in his life for 50 years. Even though they didn't live together, he, she hated L.A. and he obviously was there for his work. Um, so in lot, they didn't actually spend that much time together, but I bet they were on the phone 10 times a day. And she's an extraordinary person, absolutely extraordinary person. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf. If you're just joining us, my guest is Charles Elton. His new book is a biography of film director Michael Cimino. It's called Cimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and The Price of Vision. Well, somebody once said about Sylvester Stallone uh, that he did a disservice to himself and to Rocky, you know, a great movie. Mm-hmm. And that disservice was Rocky II, Rocky III, Rocky IV, Rocky Bravo. Um, and when uh, Heaven's Gate was such a colossal um, flop, which it was for a while, um, people began to question whether or not the deer hunter was really good. Mm-hmm. They, they, That's right. Question their uh, their their judgment in 1978. Um, was he uh, uh, was it a fluke? Was he an auteur? What what was he? Well, one of the other reasons I wanted to write about him was he's kind of unlike anybody else in Hollywood. He doesn't fit into, though he's of the same generation. He wasn't part of the movie brats like De Palma and Coppola and Spielberg and George Lucas. He wasn't part of that kind of cool Hollywood group who loved talking about old movies. 
Um, in a way, he, you know, he, 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 I mean, again, he said this, how true it is, I don't know. Um, but he, he didn't know anything about movies, really. And he had no influences. I mean, that's clearly not totally true. But, you know, if you look at Bogdanovich's movies, who again was part of that movie, Brad Lawn, I mean, you can see, you can see the references to other movies and every single thing he did. And you can see where it came. I'm not saying Bogdanovich copied anything. And a lot of people work in a tradition of somebody else. And Cimino didn't in any way at all. And quite why that was, I'm not totally sure. Um, but he was technically brilliant. And he picked that up in commercials. I mean, he was absolutely, you know, in editing and, you know, what the French called mise-en-scene. He was absolutely meticulous. And um, that, of course, doesn't make you a good director. I mean, that's like being able to know where the chess pieces move without necessarily being able to play chess very well. Um, but yes, it's, you know, if you look at certainly, I mean, the first three movies, possibly the fourth year of the dragon, the first three movies were movies he wanted to make that meant something to him. So the first one, which people somehow kind of ignore, which is called Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which is a Clint Eastwood movie, which he wrote, Chimino wrote and directed. I mean, it is a genre piece in that sense, but it's also rather a personal film and it's wonderful. It's actually probably my favorite Chimino film. So he does this sort of weird Midwest caper movie. Um, then he does the deer hunter, which could not be more different. And then he does um, the deer, uh, sorry, heaven's gate, which couldn't be more different from the deer hunter. So these are three very different movies. And of course, you can argue that auteurs don't always make the same movie. Um, I mean, Orson Welles didn't make the same movie. Um, Hitchcock, well, of course, Hitchcock in a set one sense did sort of make the same movie, but they weren't the same movie. Um, so I think he was an auteur, really. You know, and, and you're right about the critical response to The Deer Hunter. And I put some of the quotes in the book you know, the quote that people that like Stanley Kaufman, who was a critic for the New Republic, um, what he said about the deer hunter when it came out and then what he said about the deer hunter when um, Heaven's Gate came out, like two completely different things. And everybody who had given the deer hunter by no means got great reviews everywhere. And it's still quite a controversial film. Um, you know, they did begin after the disaster that was Heaven's Gate, they began to sort of backtrack and feel that, well, if he's made Heaven's Gate, he couldn't have done The Deer Hunter well, except the movie should stand on its own, whatever happens before it or afterwards. When I remember in 1978 seeing The Deer Hunter uh, with friends and then arguing about it afterwards and then going to see it again and arguing about it. <laughs> it was a movie you couldn't watch without discussing it and analyzing it and arguing about it, which, you know, I think it's pretty easy to see um, Avengers Endgame and not discuss it with anybody ever. <laughs> um, or even admit that you've gone to see it. Um, the Deer Hunter is a, a very strange movie. And I wonder, the, the, the Russian roulette aspect of Deer Hunter, do you think the Russian roulette is a, 
and, and you talk a little bit about the origins of that part of the story in your book is very interesting. But do you think that Russian, the Russian roulette is a metaphor for something? Well, that, that's what everybody always talked about, it being a metaphor. I mean, I, I, what, is, what is your definition of a metaphor? Well, that it, it is, stands for something else, or it's... Um, it's exactly. It's, I mean, a metaphor is like in um, Hitchcock's North by Northwest, when Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint are about to get it together on the train... Suddenly there's a shot of the train going into the tunnel and you know what's going to happen next. <laughs> That's a metaphor. I mean, I'm, I, well, there are two things about the Russian road is a, whether it happened or not. And B, everybody said it was a metaphor, but I don't know what, what is it standing for? Yes, it seems to me <laughs> it is what it is. And it, it, you know, a metaphor is something purporting to be something else, but what is it purporting to be other than, I suppose, broadly, you could say it's a metaphor for man's inhumanity to man. But you don't really need a metaphor for man's inhumanity to man, because it's like has always been there and will always be there. I think it just is what it is. And I think one of the reasons I say in the book that people endlessly call, he said it wasn't a metaphor. Um I, th- I think one of the reasons people talk about it as a metaphor is that it's so horrific. It's easier. It distances yourself from the horror of it. If you think it's a metaphor for something else, I think, I mean, that's just my supposition. And he came, as you know, came under a huge amount of criticism for the fact that it didn't happen. And I, I don't know whether it happened or not. There are certainly no recorded cases of it. But, you know, if you if you had a German POW camp movie and the evil Nazis made everybody play Russian roulette, you wouldn't get outcry about that. You wouldn't get people saying it never happened. It's outrageous. I mean, it's hard... It's hard to to think about what didn't happen if people put six million people in a gas chamber. I mean, let's face it, anything could happen. But you wouldn't get people saying that. But they did say it about this. And part of that, I think, is because the Vietnam War was so raw with the Second World War. It was very clearly delineated. You didn't get anywhere like anti-war demonstrations about the second world war it seemed as far as it exists a good war i mean a war worth fighting um so you didn't get anti-war protests and you know people people would have as i say not complained about that being seen but in the the, there were in the in the second world, there were good guys and bad guys, and you knew who the good guys were, and you knew who the bad guys were. In the Vietnam War, who were the bad guys? I mean, if you were um, the government, obviously the Viet Cong were the bad guys. But to liberal America, that wasn't necessarily the case. It was more nuanced than that. And I'm sorry to be an English person talking about the Vietnam War, about which I know almost nothing. <laughs> um, but it was it was very nuanced. So I think that's why more attention was paid to the Russian roulette thing. 
And I think people felt it was one-sided because it went into the Viet Cong atrocities or invented that particular Viet Cong atrocity that may or may not have happened. But I think people wanted equal opportunity. They wanted something about my lay or they wanted some equal equaling up to show that the US Army behaved appallingly, which I'm sure it probably did. I'm sure it did. So I think that was sort of part of it. And, and, and it managed rather stylishly to irritate everybody, the film. You know, the anti-war people didn't like it because it, it didn't come down. It didn't seem to be criticising the war. But the pro-war people felt that it was just standing on the fence and wasn't saying anything. So th- th- that's really why it was such a kind of controversial movie. You're listening to From the Bookshelf. I'm Gary Shapiro, and my guest is Charles Elton. He's a novelist, but his new book is a biography of film director Michael Cimino, the director of The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate. And the book is called Cimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and the Price of a Vision. You put it in perspective in your book, because we talk about The Deer Hunter and one of the films that it faced in competition in the Academy Awards that year was Coming Home, How Ashby's Coming Home, which starred Jane Fonda, and Jane Fonda was one of those people who had generated a lot of controversy during the Vietnam War for going to North Vietnam. Yes, absolutely. And that that you couldn't get two diametrically opposed films. I mean, it's, it's weird looking at... I remember loving Coming Home at the time, but looking, I looked obviously at them both again, and I know uh, Deer Hunter much better than I know Coming Home. I thought after however many years it is, 40-something years, the Deer Hunter is, is, is still an amazingly powerful film. It doesn't look kind of old-fashioned, whereas Coming Home is curiously sort of dated Of course, it had its heart in the right place, much more so in a way than The Deer Hunter. But it was terribly kind of sentimental. And if you want a metaphor, um, you know, the the whole thing about uh, Jane Fonda with her gung-ho army husband, played by Bruce Dern, she has terrible sex and just lies there not quite knowing what's happening. But the moment she gets together with the liberal, right-on, paraplegic John Voigt, instantly the best sex she's ever had. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a bit cheesy after all these years, but but still, it's it's a great movie. I just don't think it's held up that well. Interesting. Um, I haven't watched it in a while. I do remember Bruce Dern's performance as being really excellent. I think the best. Oh, movie. wonderful! Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a good time uh, on YouTube, thanks to you, sending me looking for Michael Cimino's commercials. The, the, my favorite is this one that he made when he was in advertising for Pepsi that was shot at Disneyland, and it features two adults having fun at Disneyland. It has nothing to do with kids. Yeah. And, and they're drinking Pepsi, and there must be like 100 shots in this. It's great. Those, I, I did, th- there are two commercials there, and you'll have seen them both. The others take me along. You saw that one? Yes. There's one other that you must look up that isn't credited to him. If you put in Anne-Margaret Canada Dry, 
you get the commercially shot with Anne Margaret for Canada Dry, which is wonderful. Those are the only three I could ever find. Because, of course, the trouble is commercials are essentially ephemeral. So nobody really bothers to keep them. I'm sure Ridley Scott keeps his Apple commercial, but that's because it costs like $10 million. Um, and that's why learned... a vault somewhere in some advertising agency. That yeah. yeah. Um, that's where he learned how to make movies, you know, doing these two minute, one minute things, as you say, with the Pepsi thing, um, just stuffed full of kind of zoom pans, whips, cut, 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 cut. And it's great. And nobody really was doing, I mean, you know, I don't know everything about commercials in the 1960s, but my research you know, people were really making those kind of commercials. Of course, they came and people, I didn't mean they, things changed in commercials, mostly because they you could shoot them on film and cut them like a normal movie, which you yeah, had. But been mostly it was people standing in front of products and talking about them. Exactly, exactly. So, so, you know, he was very original and that's where he became technically so good. And indeed, because he was just as demanding on the commercials as he was on Heaven's Gate and rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way, caused a lot of hostility. Well, I, I, I pulled out Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. I have the Blu-ray, which I'm happy to have. And the, the very opening scene, the very first thing you see before anything happens, looks like it could be from Heaven's Gate. It's this yeah. beautiful pastoral, before, before any kind of Clint Eastwoody thing, happens yeah uh, uh so it definitely has his uh, his his vision and it's a very clever film i mean that opening of clint eastwood as a priest giving a sermon is literally the most unexpected start to a clint eastwood movie it's really clever and i don't i mean it, 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 i do a lot of talking about it in the book who wrote what and all his life, he was dogged by, you know, questions over who wrote what. And he always cut everybody else's name off the scripts if he collaborated with them. Not the famous collaborators, Raymond Carver, Gore Vidal, Oliver Stone. He was happy to share credit with them. But he always worked with people. And, I mean, there are people... I mean, I don't know, who think that he must have had somebody working on Thunderbolt and Lightfoot with him. It's such an unlikely thing for, you know, a middle-class kid from Long Island to suddenly jump headfirst into a particular kind of crime caper genre that is very, you know, the dialogue is kind of tangy. I don't know where it came from, really. And maybe I'm being maybe he just came out of his head and he sat down and wrote it but there was endless controversy about who wrote deer hunter and who contributed what and in fact the only as you know from reading the book there was an earlier script that he was given which was a terrible terrible script but it had one thing in it which was the russian roulette um and he said he didn't want to do that script and he took just took the idea of in a war situation, the soldiers being made to play Russian roulette 
and created the deer hunter out of it. He never, ever, ever said that the Russian roulette thing wasn't original to him. He never said anything wasn't original to him. <laughs> well, it could be that he um, he said, oh, Russian roulette, I've been thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but uh, again, as I say in the book, that's what, I mean, one of the things I, I was trying to do in the book was, you know, everybody has has said really horrible things about Cimino, and I'm sure a lot of them were justified, but, and particularly the Stephen Bach book about the making of Heaven's Gate, people talk about Cimino as if this is the first time any director had behaved as badly, and this doesn't justify him. They all behave badly. That's what they do. Yes. Directors push it. Hitchcock, and John Ford, everybody. That, yeah, that's what they do. And and everybody p- puts it all on Chimino as being the worst. I mean, there were many, many people who behaved much worse than he did. As you mentioned in your book, nobody was decapitated as they were on the set of... No, the, exactly. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about Heaven's Gate. Um, I love it. I mean, I had never seen it until the Criterion Blu-ray came out because I never had an opportunity to see it. Sure, like everybody else. And I think it's great. I love it. I mean, I think it's like this is what the West probably looked like. I mean, it's muddy and crowded and noisy and there's all this traffic, but the traffic is horses and carriages and stuff. And and, there's a scene in Gone with the Wind, the scene where Scarlet leaves the hospital and she gets caught up in all the traffic of people fleeing oh. that kind of reminds me of uh, of that when I see Heaven's Gate um, I mean I think it's a masterful work of art and I can't imagine why everybody hated it although you explain it pretty well in the book but the people who hated it did any of them were any of them around uh, to say oh it's really great and I was wrong well, that's a good question. Now, you, I, maybe I should have tracked them down. But no, the <laughs> fact is, yeah, I, th- I quote, well, no, I suppose I quote people not at the time who think it's a brilliant movie. I'm sure there are. And no, I'm a terrible writer. I didn't track them down. <laughs> um, what, did it, what, did it Chimino, what did it mean to Chimino to have the film finally out there? Well, I think I think it was incredibly moving for him. I mean, wouldn't it be for any of us? You know, everybody hates you for, you know, 30 years, and then they suddenly say you're wonderful. Of course you'd be moved by it. Um, no, I think it meant an enormous amount to him. And of course it did. But partly because, you know, he was right. He always thought it was a great film, but actually it is a great film. And... You know, there, there are lots of things wrong with it. Um, you know, when I saw the only version you could see in England, anyway, at the time, it was the short version, you know, the two, the, the, <coughs> the Criterion uh, Restoration, which calls itself the Director's Cup. But in fact, it is almost identical to how it was when it came out. But then it was cut by an hour and I saw the cut version because I would say the only one you could see. And I thought it was wonderful, but I thought um, if I saw the long version, I'd understand the story a bit better. 
And when I did see the long version, I didn't understand the story any better because <laughs> he didn't actually cut out. He cut out no scenes. He just shortened the scenes. And so I was, I'm still mystified as to what, what is John Hurt doing in the movie? He's at the opening parade. He run, Chris Christopherson runs into him once or twice. But what, you know, what's the rest of it? And I think, you know, I think it's a sort of a plot for his own in lots of ways. But that doesn't make it a bad movie. <coughs> I think, I mean, it's like reading a novel. It's discursive. It's like, for me, it's like Barry Lyndon, which again is discursive. I mean, Barry Lyndon is a greater film, actually, but that's what it always reminds me of. Although that was a film that was critically panned as well. No, people didn't like that either. You're listening to From the Bookshelf. I'm Gary Shapiro, and my guest is Charles Elton. He's a novelist, but his new book is a biography of film director Michael Cimino, the director of The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate. And the book is called Cimino. The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and the Price of a Vision. Peter Bogdanovich, who recently passed away and was once a guest on this show, um, was a guy who had great success. He had a few really popular movies. And then he spent the rest of his life, just like his idol Orson Welles, um, not making great movies yeah. and, and um, continuously trying. Uh, but I don't think anybody has gone through what Chimino went through, which was to be no, at the very no, top. Not at all. You're right. I mean, with Bogdanovich, and you know, and it's in a sense, it it, it has some similarities to Chimino's career. I mean, if you look at uh, actually even Targets, Bogdanovich's first film, which is a kind of Roger Corman thing, but it's wonderful. The Last Picture Show, Paper Moon. What's Up, Doc? You know, which is kind of derivative, but it's a great movie. I mean, it beggars belief that the same person who made those movies could make some of the movies that Peter Bogdanovich made later. I mean, some of them were jobs for hire, and everybody finally is stuck with doing jobs for hire. But even the ones that weren't jobs for hire are terrible movies. Yeah. And Uh maybe people have you know, to everything there is a season, not every, I mean, I think if you look at painters, always seem to me to be an exception, but novelists, playwrights, film directors, there's a kind of golden moment or a golden period. And it's downhill all the way after that. I mean, look at Tennessee Williams, you know, after, at the end of the 50s, early 60s, like Night of the Iguana, which actually is a great play, I would say that every play Tennessee Williams wrote was terrible. There may be people who disagree with me after that. Yeah. Ditto Arthur Miller after The Price in 1967 and after The Fall. All terrible, I think. Um, Hitchcock's late movies were pretty terrible. It happens. It happens. Yeah. yeah. And with rock musicians, certainly, you know, they have their sure period, you know, uh, so I guess it's not that unusual. But in, in, in Chimino's case, if Heaven's Gate had been a success, what would that have meant for him? Well, that's really, really, really interesting. And I think... I think he would have gone on to make great movies. I think he needed... He needed the total... He needed total control. Um he somehow couldn't do it any other way. 
And that was, I suppose, as a film director, a failing. Because the trouble is, if you're a poet or a writer, all you need is, you know, a pencil and some paper. Yeah. Uh, whereas with film directors, it's a bit different than that. You need a pencil and a bit of paper to write the script. And then you need, you know, $100 million that somebody else is putting up. Um, I think he would, I think he would have made, I think, I don't know. I think he would have made interesting films. I mean, people, the, the film he made after Heaven's Gate, Year of the Dragon with Mickey Rourke, lots of people think it's a really great Jamina movie. It's certainly the best of his later movies, but I, I, I don't think it's that wonderful. And the movies after that, the last three movies are all really, really, really terrible. I mean, it's not <laughs> similar to Bogdanovich's late films. You can't believe that Chimino is making them. Yeah. Well, um, but he, he also didn't um, just make... But they were, as I say, sorry, they were works for hire. Mm-hmm. They were. I mean, they were... He took the job, you know. Yeah. And why did anybody want to hire him? Well, I mean, nobody ever said he was untalented, the fact that he made Heaven's Gate, even the people who thought Heaven's Gate was terrible, I don't think necessarily thought he was untalented. And, you know, you get pariah directors who've had some big disaster. Um, you know, you think, I think, obviously, they they still have talent, despite the fact they made a disaster. They tend to be cheaper and they tend to be better behaved after they've had a disaster. So that's in itself more attractive to a studio. And actually the impressive thing about Cimino was when after three or four, two, three years in the wilderness after Heaven's Gate, he was offered Flashdance. Um, sorry, scrub that, Footloose. Yeah. Footloose. Um, yeah. You know, which the is, same movie, which... Flashdance and Footloose? No. Sorry? They're, I mean, they're not dissimilar movies. Um, <laughs> he was offered this slightly improbable movie that everybody's seen, the one with Kevin Bacon. Um, and he, you'd think, having got his first gig, and it was like a proper, I mean, it might have been a bit of a schlocky movie, but like it was a proper movie and they were going to put everything behind it. Um, you'd have thought that he would be better behaved not at all. He behaved terribly. I interviewed the writer of it who hated him. You know, he tried to change the script. He got sacked off it because he wouldn't. You would have thought he would think this is a, this is my chance for redemption. I'm going to make sure it all goes well. Not at all. And I think that's really impressive in a kind of perverse sort of way. His golden opportunity to come back and he wasn't uh, going to, he uh, wasn't going to bow down. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Charles Elton, you're a television producer. What what are you most proud of of your work that you've produced for television? Oh, well, I worked for ITV, which is like CBS it's, or, or ABC. It's one of the it, it's the biggest commercial terrestrial channel. I'm sure you know that. Maybe everybody knows that. Um, and I just did dramas. I did tons of things. I did. Uh, 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 one of the things I liked best was was a was a film of Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey that um, Andrew Davis wrote, who wrote you know who does who writes practically all adaptations in England, mm-hmm. um, 
that was a nice movie. They were all, you know, I, 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 you know, ITV is very, very commercial, and I have very low tastes, so I fitted in <laughs> very, very well. I wasn't an auteur producer. <laughs> well, uh, you, from my experience, I like the things that I've seen from from ITV. Yeah. The Avengers was on ITV, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, before my time. Yes. <laughs> Yes, well, I was a little kid. Well, uh, this book is just great. It's called Chimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and the Price of Vision. And the author, Charles Elton. Thank, thanks so much for spending some time talking with us about it. On From No, you know, I can go on talking about Chimino. I mean, he's such an interesting figure. There is nobody else like him. Charles Elton, his new book, Chimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and the price of a vision. I'm Gary Shapiro. This is From the Bookshelf. From the Bookshelf contributor Eve Golden joins me now. Uh, Eve is a fabulous author and a, uh, a chronicler of American popular culture in the 20th century. Uh, her, her book, Jane Mansfield, The Girl Couldn't Help It, The Girl Didn't Help It, I forgot what it's called, but what a great book it was, my, one of my favorite books the last couple of years and and she's got a brand new book coming out in 2023 strictly dynamite and this the sensational life of lupe velez and eve golden also writes obituaries for a national news service eve golden welcome back to from the bookshelf thank you so much it's nice to see you again or hear you again you too and tell me that i i screwed up the title of your jane mansfield book uh jane mansfield the girl couldn't help it it's such a great book. I love it. And, Thank and you. Everybody should read it. And um, gaming I've, was such fun to spend a couple of years with. I've just been lucky enough to read your new Lupe Velez book in advance of its publication, and I'm I'm so happy uh, that that book is coming because, and I, I want to congratulate you on it because, and we'll do a whole show about it when your book comes out in September. Thank you. But. Um, to uh, to have rescued uh, Lupe Velez from Kenneth Anger and his book. Uh, Hollywood Babylon, which is, I guess, you know, the story that he tells in that book is one of the, when people think of Lupe Velez, that's what they think of. If they I wanted to call the book Lupe Velez, No, She Didn't Drown in Her Toilet, but the publisher wouldn't go with that. They didn't like that title. No. It is physically impossible to drown in your toilet unless her maid was holding her by the ankles and dunking her. It, your your book brings her to life in such a, a marvelous way. And there's so many great films and so many wonderful things about her that that really shine in your book so well what shocked me is what a really talented and versatile actress she was because i thought of her for the mexican spitfire films but when i went back and looked a lot of her dramas and comedies uh she was incredibly talented and versatile should have been a much bigger star there's a film i love of hers the half naked truth oh that's a great one (laughs) that's a very funny movie she's terrific in it and so beautiful. She was very, very beautiful. And of course, she steals Hollywood Party. Hollywood Party. Oh, yeah. She has a great scene with Laurel and Hardy. And they... the, the egg fight. And also, I love the um, Schnarzan uh, parody of Tarzan that she and Jimmy Durante do, because, of course, she was married to Tarzan at the time they did that. That's right. Johnny Weissmiller. I love Jimmy Durante, too. And, I, you know, I think today a lot of people have never heard of Jimmy Durante. They have oh, get out of here. Look. No, and I, how would you, how could you describe Jimmy Durante to anybody? 
<laughs> it's yeah, it's very difficult. Uh, and he, I think, was Lupe Velez's best leading man. They co-starred on Broadway and in several films together. And they just had such a great on-screen chemistry. Uh, they were both scene stealers and they were both on 110% trying to steal the scenes from each other in, in a friendly, competitive way when they were in films together. I, in, when I was 16, I saw Jimmy Durante perform at the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, and it was an extremely memorable evening. Loved him. But um, you write obituaries for a national news service, and there have been uh, quite a few major deaths just since the last time we spoke. Um, well, inevitably, people will wait until the magazines and newspapers and TV stations have done their year-end tributes, and then they will drop dead just out of sheer perversity to screw up everybody's deadlines. <laughs> so at the end of December, there are always two or three big deaths, inevitably. And sometimes there are deaths that um, of people who people have forgotten or don't know about. And so it's nice to take a mo moment to the re remember them. But I guess one of the biggest was Barbara Walters. Poor. Oh, uh, to this day, I cannot not think of her as Baba Wawa, which is it's so mean to make fun of somebody for a very slight speech impediment but I love Gilda Radner so much and she was so funny and when I was writing about Barbara Walters I had to literally stop myself from accidentally typing Baba Wawa in the obit because that's how I've thought of her since the 1970s. One of the greatest of those um, Baba Wawa shows with Gilda Radner was when Madeline Kahn was on the show playing Marlena Dietrich being interviewed by Barbara Walters. Yes. <laughs> and she says, Oh, you look so marvelous. And uh, Marlena As I do Dietrich all my says, own wiping. Oh, I didn't know you wote. I don't wipe, I wipe. <laughs> and Marlena Dietrich actually thought that Madeline Kahn was very funny. She wrote her a fan letter about her imitation of her. Oh, that's great so to good know. Good for Marlena. But Barbara Walters was an incredibly important um, person in the history of of television journalism. She was. She the first. was. She. I mean, it was an interesting uh, variation in what she did. She interviewed presidents and world leaders and people like Castro and uh, all of the presidents. Um, and then she did these trashy celebrity interviews. So she really had to spread herself out thin. And she had to be rude and nasty and intrusive because that was her job. Uh, you really can't blame her for asking inappropriate, personal, unpleasant questions, because even though that's not a nice thing to do, it was her job. And she did it so well. She uh, One of the biggest intrusions was when she intruded on Harry Reasoner's uh, anchor desk at ABC News and became the first female to anchor a network news program. And Howie Wiesner. He was so warm and welcoming. Oh, my God. He was such a son of a bitch to her. <laughs> he really was not happy having to share the... Uh, and, of course, everybody remembers her asking Catherine Hepburn what kind of a tree she'd like to be. <laughs> what did Catherine Hepburn say? Does anybody well, remember? I don't know. I suppose everyone wants to be an oak. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn suddenly dropped by the show. Thanks, Eve.
Um, there was also uh, the Pope, the first and only Pope in hundreds of years to... Since 1413. Yeah. To, did you write about the one in 1413 as well? You know, I did. I was, I was merely a teenager at the time, but I, <laughs> I was already writing. The, the, uh, uh, this was not uh, one of my favorite popes. I mean, you can't blame him for being drafted into the Hitler Youth because, you know, unless you're going to join the resistance, you kind of had to go into the Hitler Youth. But mm. he was in the Luftwaffe, and I think I was the only person who mentioned in his obituary, he was in the Luftwaffe. You can't overlook that, you know? Yeah, uh, that's a good point. He was the Pope, but... He was a Nazi. There's <laughs> there's no polite way to put it, you know? Yeah. He was literally a card-carrying Nazi. I wonder if he's the only Pope to have been a Nazi. Well, I just read a biography of the wartime Pope, the World War II Pope, who was even worse than I thought. Uh, he was not a Nazi, but he was a fascist, which is not a whole lot better. Um, he was busy kissing Hitler and Mussolini's asses in order to protect his own job and allowing not only Jews, but other people to be murdered right under his nose and not saying a thing about it. Whereas I thought what he should have done, being Pope and supposedly, you know, uh, doing what Christ would have done, he should have gotten on the trains going to the concentration camp along with the Jews and sacrificed himself, and he would be remembered as the greatest pope in history. But nope, he just covered his ass and kept his mouth shut. I mean, we're not talking about the pope who just died now. We're talking about the no, World War II. The, war, the, war, the World War II one. Yeah. Yeah. But the pope who just died now, he was right wing even for popes. I mean, it's part of his job to be anti-gay and anti-abortion, so you can't blame him for that because that's part of being Pope. But um, I think that one of the reasons he retired is he was too right-wing even for the Vatican. Interesting. And uh, he, that, he retired quite a few years ago. He did. I mean, they said that oh, he's in ill health, but then he lived another 20 years or so, and they got the new cool Pope in now. He's a groovy Pope, the one we have now, you know. Which which Pope visited the United States? I got a peek at the Pope. I, I have a button. Several of them. There was one in the 60s. Thank you for your perspective on the Pope. It's very interesting. But and... now let's move on to Vivian Westwood from the Pope. Speaking okay. of, you know, high drag fashions, we'll go right from the Pope to Vivian Westwood. Yeah. Um, she so people might not have heard of her. What? People might not have heard of her. She did not invent punk fashion, but she popularized it. She and Malcolm McLaren, who managed the Sex Pistols, uh, had a clothing boutique in Kings Row in London called Sex, all in capital letters, of course. And they sold punk clothing in the late 70s and really helped popularize the whole look. And she was smart enough not to stick with that too long and went on to new ways in the 80s and the new romantic look in the 90s. And she was still working until shortly before she died. So she was a very, very important fashion designer, was still doing red carpet designs up until the time she died. Um, so Vivian Westwood, to me, was one of the biggest names to die in, in December. How, how old was she? 80s. Uh, early 90s, she was up there. Hmm. 
Very interesting. Well, speaking of, of, of music, there were a couple of people in the music uh, field that uh, I noted their passing as um, a sad thing because I enjoyed their music. One was Ian Tyson, the Canadian singer-songwriter who, with his partner and wife, Sylvia, uh, popularized and wrote some great folk songs, including Four Strong Winds. I think that's the song everybody knows of theirs. Four strong winds that blow lonely Seven seas that run high All those things that don't change Come what may But our good times are all gone And I'm bound to moving on I'll look for you if I'm never back this way Think I'll go out to Alberta Weather's good there in the fall I got some friends that I can go to work in full Still I wish you change your mind If I asked you one more time But we've been through that a hundred times or more For strong winds that blow Seven seas that run high All those things that don't change Come what may But our good times are all gone And I'm bound for moving on I'll look for you Four Strong Winds by Ian Tyson. The late Ian Tyson. We're talking obituaries with Eve Golden. This is from the bookshelf. I'm Gary Shapiro. Eve, there was another death from the music field. Of the Williams brothers, like Don Williams. Oh, that's right. So uh, Andy Williams' brother. Yeah. Right. Those 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 guys sang on um, Bing Crosby's record of Swinging on a Star. A mule is an animal with long, funny ears. Kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny, but his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. Or would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar. And be better off than you are, or would you rather be a pig? The Williams brothers like, were in everything from 1939, I think, up through the uh, 1970s. Uh, they would get together for reunions. I always wondered how they felt about Andy becoming such a big success. Leaving the brothers behind? Well, they all, at least some of them, Don Williams kept working uh, well into old age. He did a lot of uh, TV commercial voiceovers, things like that. So he was not out of work, but he never became the big star that Andy did. And uh, Don Williams was like 100 years old, I believe. Literally 100 years old. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And uh, and there was Anita Pointer uh, of the Pointer Sisters. She did some of their best lead 
vocals, and my favorite would be Slow Hand, which is a marvelous song that she sings so well back in, in the early 80s. Yeah, tell me about Earl Bone. Earl Bone was one of those character actors who was in everything. He was in all the Terminator films, none of which I've seen, but he played <laughs> one of the cranky chefs on It's a Living, which um, was one of those shows that they always had on while I was getting ready for work in the morning. So I've seen like the first half of every episode. <laughs> so he was one of those people like cranky old guys and authority figures, and he just worked in everything forever. Well, uh, that's uh, it's always sad and somehow delightful to talk with you about the people who have died. Eve Golden, uh, thanks so much for visiting with us on From the Bookshelf. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. It's always lovely to talk to you. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf, and she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.